Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Middle Brow series, I am joined by two new interlocutors, my friend Peter Robinson, whom I am now looking at, gazing upon with affection and nostalgia since we haven't seen each other in years since this plague started, and John Yu, whom I have never seen before, but heard and, and seen on Ricochet podcasts and such things, and on YouTube, because he is a lawyer and a celebrity among lawyers. <laughs> A celebrity, yes. A celebrity I, lawyer. I am a celebrity is, which, which, lawyer. Which is even a rank lower, if I think. <laughs> Admittedly, celebrity, there's always something suspicious about that, but there's also I wanna, something I always wanted to the, be the, uh, I want to be the Lincoln lawyer, like in the movies. <laughs> Johnny <laughs> Cochran. Johnny Cochran is what you're turning out to be, John. <laughs> no, this I, is, uh, if you're a fan of different movies and shows, this is, there's the uh, detective show that's on Amazon Prime called Bosch. Harry Bosch, yes, which is a great, yes. and I've read all those books. And then there's a, right, a side detour. Harry Bosch's brother is the Lincoln lawyer in the movie. There's, so yeah, there's a whole right. line of Harry Bosch related lawyer books. That's they, right. is, and they're great. They're, and he, make it even better. One of my very close friends, I think, was the model for this lawyer. And he told me about how he was consulted by the movie producers about how to make the movie, The Lincoln Lawyer. This, and it gets even worse. It's like an episode out of Seinfeld. So I said, well, did you get to meet with Matthew McConaughey? He said, no. He said, but I did get to talk to Marissa Tomei for a whole hour. And I was like, Marissa Tomei. It's like George Costanza and Seinfeld when he, try, he gets to meet Marissa Tomei. See, I know a wow. lot about pop culture. <laughs> if you remember this particular Seinfeld episode, it's one of the best episodes. Marissa Tomei meets George Costanza. And she says, George, how are you not taken? How is someone so bald and fat and quirky not taken already of course george is engaged and so he pretends he's not and then he says well there's this engagement thing but it's not serious and then marissa tomei belts him i will have you know that i know eddie hayes lawyer in manhattan who was the model for the lawyer in bonfire of the vanities oh really yes 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 counselor eddie hayes as tom wolf always referred to him he does not appear under his real name, but I have it from Tom Wolfe and Ed Hayes himself that he was the model for the lawyer in Bonfire of the Vanities. Titus, you need to take back control of your own podcast where John and I will, will go. By the way, speaking of lawyers, there's a tremendously artful segue for you. I saw Anatomy of a Murder not long ago. Jimmy Stewart plays the, it's Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Is it Jimmy Stewart and George C. Scott? Who plays the prosecutor? Jimmy Stewart plays the defending attorney. Was it DJ Cobb? Lee J. We should be able to look this up in two seconds. But the striking thing, the judge, I thought, who, who plays the judge? The judge is just a wonderful character actor, kind of bumbly and yet incisive when he needs to be. He lets the lawyers go and go, and then he takes control of the courtroom. And the judge was played by Joseph Welch, the lawyer who nailed Joseph McCarthy really? in the Army McCarthy hearings. Wow. As far as I know, it's the only role he ever played. He played it just beautifully. And within six months after they closed filming, he was dead of a heart attack. Wow. I was about to say, I really waiting now for my appearance as an extra, but not if it means you only have six months to live. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently celebrity lawyers and cinema go much further than we thought. This should be an entire podcast. Let's just do oh, it yeah. next month, however. Oh, uh, oh no, no, no. You you get we we have courses in law schools called law and cinema where we really? just talk are you about serious? 
yes, we talk about the depiction of lawyers and judges because there's so many movies about the law. And so we, we wonder, like, do more normal people, civilians, believe about the law, what they see in TV and movies, not from how it actually operates? Like, how do you know what the Miranda warning is? It's not because you looked it up. It's because you hear it on every TV show about police officers. Right. So we have whole right. courses about, like, depiction of the law in movies. Yes. I just looked it up. The prosecutor was George C. Scott, by the way. Yeah, you're right. In Anatomy of a, of a Murder. 1959, a 1959 picture. That's Otto Preminger. It was, uh, That's exactly his right. Of movie. It's, uh, yes. it's a good movie. The woman I have Lee to Rem- say, I look at it and I it say it's liberal, yeah. but it is a good movie. Jimmy Stewart was such a staunch defender and close friend of Ronald Reagan that he inoculates the whole movie for me. If Jimmy Stewart's there, I think to myself, this movie's safe. And I can relax and I don't think in ideological terms at all, which that's a very difficult toggle to reach in my mind. It's all almost always on, but Jimmy Stewart toggles it off. Oh, so Jimmy Stewart, right? He put his uh, movie career on hold and went served on the bombers in World War II. I mean, that's yes, amazing. He did. That's right. Right? Yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, and he, he lost one of his he lost one of his stepsons. Yeah. His wife had been married before. He was only married once, but his wife had been married previously, and he lost one of his stepsons in Vietnam. I did not know. I didn't know that. And never turned against the Vietnam War. He was a really remarkable man. I met him once. He was in the White Mm -hmm. House. I said, Mr. Stewart, I wrote the remarks the president is about to deliver. And here's what Jimmy Stewart said to me. Oh, and then his (laughs) wife came and took him by the elbow and led him away. He didn't have some witty remark about how the the writers are more important than the actors or something? No, he was pretty old man at that stage. (laughs) He he was (laughs) trying to figure out where he was supposed to go. Anyway, that was my life with Jimmy Stewart. Titus, take control. All right. I'm fascinated by this idea of lawyers and cinema and what it means to have celebrities and what it means to have the law give you these images that indeed you would never know from real life. You just see it in the shows and the movies. Hopefully you've never had the Miranda warnings read to you. (laughs) Not to me. I'm sure sure Peter has many times, but (laughs) yes, the Miranda warnings you only know from Law and Order, really. John, do you find yourself, when you read these Michael Connelly Bosch novels, do you find yourself critiquing it as a of lawyer? Course. Now he's got this wrong, yeah, or they've got that wrong. Or so, who's good from the lawyer's point of view? Oh no, who has I the actually procedure think these down? Michael. I actually think these Michael, Michael Connolly books are very good. He's. I got mean, it. he basically, if I remember correctly, Michael Connolly used to be a crime reporter for the LA Times. Oh, so I he's see. getting a lot of this from the the police officers he knew, and covering I the crime. See. So it's very. I've. I mean, the plot twists and everything are a little. You know, can be silly. But I find like in terms of the procedural stuff, it's He's got I think it. it's fairly true to life. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Because I love Bosch. Not I don't yeah, love it I enough do to too. read it, but I love it enough to watch the show. Oh, no. The books are much better than the TV show. Are oh, they yeah, really? Much better. Oh, yeah, yeah. Books are much work, much better. So each each of the episodes on the Amazon Prime show are often three of the novels crunched, scrunched together. So they've taken I a lot see. out of the books. And then the other thing, and this is also related to the master and commander stuff, is there's a lot about the food in L.A., my kind of food, not Bouchon or Wolfgang Puck. It's all about cheap street food. So whenever I'm reading the books, I'm writing this stuff down about places to go because they're all real places. And like where to get like cheap, good burritos and French dip sandwiches and you know, Japanese curry because like, he, he was a beats, you know, crime beat reporter. I didn't yeah, know. I, I should have it. known that about him. I did not know that about oh, him. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that's why the grit in those books is real. Yes. The feel of the streets mm-hmm. is real. He comes yeah, by the that books honestly. are even grittier. 
So Master and Commander, as I rewatched it last night for the first time since it came out in 2003. Yes. Oh, I've seen it like 10 times. Oh, have you? Okay, so it's I on had TV to watch... all the time. It's on cable all the time. Yeah, I was. Is it really? It on cable. So yeah. Patrick O'Brien wrote 20 novels from 1969 to 1999. Master and Commander, the movie, takes episodes from at least two or three. Isn't that right? Yeah, there's elements from first one, Master and Commander, from I think it was HMS Surprise, the third one, and from Far Side of the World, which is the tenth one, but they're all modified into a script. The director, Peter Weir, he's wonderful. And he put wow, up this entire here. thing that comes up to one full story and a kind of account of Britain versus France and the Napoleonic Wars. But also the characters are the characters from the novels and the care of all things nautical is also from the novel. So for all yes, the liberties taken, they, they fit fairly well in the series. I think even fans liked the fact that it's close enough to getting a 21st Aubrey Maturin story in the movie. So that's why it was such a success. And it's also more a movie. It's more cinema and less of a novel. You're not going to have a lot of interior monologue and you're not going to have all that much nautical jargon. That's not how cinema works. But on the other hand, you do get more of a sense of the mission. The drive, the yes, you do. coming yes, together, you do. the drama, what it means for these people to pull together or to fail, and how catastrophic it could be, of course. It struck me as a flawless movie, almost flawless. Flawless entertainment in the following sense. From the first frame, it grabs you, and it doesn't let you go until the very end. There's nothing slack in the movie. There's no downtime. There's no moment... I felt, and my wife felt, she watched it with me last night, she was seeing it for the first time, that there wasn't a moment when you weren't totally engrossed. And it's quite a long picture. I don't remember, I didn't check the time, but it's quite a long picture. The photography is gorgeous. And I was trying to think in 2003, how did they do some of those shots? Drones hadn't been invented yet, I don't think. So they must've been using those gyroscopic cameras on helicopters, those aerial shots, which are very expensive to do. The whole thing was just beautiful. It was, there's a kind of lush sense of gorgeousness about it that I just loved. I noticed only about two or three anachronisms in the dialogue. At one point, the sailor who has his head trepanned and he says something that the other sailors think is ridiculous. And a sailor sitting next to him says, where did that come from? Well, where did that come from? is an early 20th, not an early 19th century construction. And then there's a bit, the first time he appears, the young midshipman Blakeney is referred to as Lord Blakeney. And then about halfway through the movie, he turns into Mr. Blakeney and never is Lord Blakeney again. So there's one little glitch in continuity, but those are minute flaws in a staggering thing. So I also kept thinking, what a tragedy that it was viewed at the time, not as a flop, but is much too minor a success to justify sequels. So I looked this up. The thing cost about 150 million and it grossed about 200 million. So movie studios are notorious for fancy accounting. Who knows how much it netted? But on the official accounting, it was only modestly profitable. It's so beautiful that you think, oh, I want to see 10 more of these. Why didn't they make 10 more? And the answer was it didn't make much money. It happens that in 2003, shortly after seeing that movie, I found myself seated at lunch with the man who then owned 20th Century Fox Studios, 
Rupert Murdoch. It was a largely Australian picture. Russell Crowe's an Australian actor. Peter Weir's an Australian director. Rupert Murdoch knew these people and liked them and they were his friends and he loved the movie and he wanted it to be a big success. And he was disappointed that it just didn't seem to make enough money to produce the kind of commercial updraft to justify sequels. And he did say, it was amusing to me. He said, oh, if I'd looked at the script beforehand, I might've suggested there's only that one moment when women appear, when they put in to restock supplies and islanders come canoeing out to bring them fresh water and bananas and so forth. And there's that one moment that lasts 30 seconds when Russell Crowe gazes at a beautiful Polynesian lady. And Rupert said, oh, if only they'd added a bit of a love story, they could have doubled the audience. They could have interested women as well. Anyways, the poor man was talking out of frustration. So the big question is, why didn't it get a bigger audience? Why didn't it make more money? Let me jump in. So I actually have the opposite reaction to Peter. Yes. As usual. I, Why am I not yeah, surprised? The, no, the thing I liked about the movie was not the grand scenes, which I think were are typical of, you know, sort of seafaring shows, but I liked the creation of the boat, right? They clearly built one and they yes, sailed they it and how yes. small it was, you know, to think that these people would go to sea for a year and live on these little boats. And I think the the novels give you this flavor too, but you know this is why movies are superior in some ways to the written word is you really don't get a sense of how small it was, how cramped the quarters were until you see it. The captain's quarters, which are the grandest ones are, you know, they wouldn't even be a hotel room in any American hotel now. Not in Las Vegas, not the hotel room <laughs> from which you are speaking right now, John. Peter, Peter, let me, let me uh, again reacquaint you with my- Oh songs. my goodness. <laughs> Are you such a high roller that they gave you, Titus, you need to explain that John is is showing us on his laptop the extent of his hotel suite. That's that's the victorious Oakland Raiders stadium you can see there from the penthouse. Those black and silver bastards. No, so one thing was just how amazing the replica of the ship was and how small the spaces were. And you get a sense of how cramped it was, not just First of all, I can't imagine how they live below decks is amazing, but then how small the fighting ship itself was, you know, with all the rigging, how cramped the quarters were. And then the, again, also the smallness, I thought the fighting scenes when the surprise actually docks with the French ship, although in the novels, you might, Peter, I don't know if you remember this, in the novels, it's an American ship that they go after. And in order to make the movie pleasing for the American, not the Australian audience, they switched in the movie, the ship to becoming a French ship. Yeah, but in, so the USS Master, oh yeah, yeah. In the book, it's an American ship. In Master and Commander, I, it's been a while since I read the book. No, no, it's just in fact several of the books are about Jack Aubrey going to war with Americans, and in fact, yes. I think one whole novel he's a prisoner. In he's Boston. in Boston. Exactly. Yes, he's a prisoner during Boston. the war right. of eighteen. So that's right. Yeah. Yes, so to yes. make this a, a an acceptable movie, showing America's soft power and cultural dominance once again. Even the British author has to convert the enemy from American into French, upon whom all right-thinking people can agree are the true enemies of civilization, the French. (laughs) So the fight scenes also, what was also good was how cramped and tight the fighting was. Because if you're on these tiny ships, you board the other ship and they're fighting with cutlasses and swords and daggers. And then, you know, these sort of unreloadable in that, you know, you don't have enough time to reload a pistol or rifle. I can't think of a movie, except maybe The Patriot with Mel Gibson, another Australian playing an American, where you get that sense of how primitive 
in tight quarters the fighting was back then. And then the second point about also you can see the origin of the Marines or, or what Marines yeah, were yeah. originally. The, they did they did not participate in sailing. Their job was to get to a high vantage point and shoot. And there's some people think the real purpose of the Marines was to keep the sailors from mutiny. Because life, as you can see on the ship, was so miserable. miserable. That miserable. You could, so that's one thing I thought after seeing the movie. The second thing is you're, it's a great point you make about the lack of women, which is also different than the novels. Because in the novels, women are a big part of the stories. Right. Remember, there's Matern's wife. Dr. Matern's wife is a spy of sorts and you know, is a very accomplished woman. And then Jack Aubrey's various uh, love affairs is a big part of the books. He's always getting into trouble. And then the last thing I'd say is that I couldn't believe there was a the sequel made too. And I was hoping now that, you know, we have all these streaming services, which commit to these, you know, multiple episodes, like the Bosch books we were talking about. Yes, yes. And you could recreate a lot of what must have cost a lot of money then to film this kind of show using CGI, you know, using digital. Yes, yes. Now, you could drive the price this, down of, of a lot of that stuff, yeah, I would this think. Would be a, I, I would think this would be a perfect opportunity for some streaming studio to make one of these series. Each book would be a great two-hour episode. I'm of the age where I draw a very sharp distinction in my mind between movies and television. My own children, very next generation, my own children draw no such sharp distinction. To them, a screen is a screen is a screen, right? But... I thought to myself last night, it says something about the decline, not the commercial decline. Hollywood is richer than ever, but the decline of movies that you get no sequel to Master and Commander, but the Marvel comic book series has now spun into what? Two dozen or close to two dozen different movies. That doesn't speak well of the American Republic or cultural life. No, Patrick O'Brien should have just had his books translated into comic books. <laughs> then they could have jumped graphic. to the movie. He could have yeah, written yeah. graphic novels. More that pictures, not a comic books. But television, <laughs> if they can drive the prices down, if they can use CGI, if you can use drones instead of helicopters, CGI instead of building two ships, if they can drive the price down, television is the place for, for this kind of thing to take place now, right? Yeah. Uh, this is indeed the right time for big investments. And that's one way to cut the costs. If you're going to get an entire season out of paying a blockbuster budget, then th that begins to be worthwhile. That's one thing the movie, you know, you just get a glimpse of what good friends the captain and the doctor are. But, you know, the whole 20, is it 20 or 21 books or however many, where you really see how important that friendship is. You only see, you know, touches of it. In the movie, it's really the action that's the star and not the relationships, I'd say. And so, you know, that's the thing that's nothing's lost in the two hour movie format rather than suppose a sort of 21 episode TV series. Yes, and that would become yes. much more important. I did feel as though Russell Crowe's character in the movie was pretty true to Jack Aubrey as he appears in the novels, and that Paul Bettany's Dr. Maturin was perfect. He, was he got that just exactly right. He's half Irish and half Catalan. We learn in the movie that he calls himself Irish. He actually comes from these two countries. Britain has run Ireland. Spain runs Catalonia. If you know this, he fits into European history. He's a permanent malcontent. His people have been oppressed for centuries on both sides. Is the way That's why Peter of... loves this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's skeptical. But at the same time, there is the kind of undercurrent and it may well have been that they had to replace an American ship with a French ship, but you still get English, you still get the kind of common 
it's not democracy exactly in England, but you do get an openness to the common figure and Napoleon is still a tyrant. It's the Republic versus the empire. It's Frodo versus the eye of Sauron. All of that comes through, right? I still don't get why Frodo gets to win. That always irritated me. Yeah, Russell Crowe, not exactly Frodo. So <laughs> there you may be going a bit far. It's David versus Goliath. That's but, what I, but, you know, that, also, right. the, you know, since we were talking about the lawyer in movies, the other things I liked about it were how important the laws of war were and you yes. know, rules and things like that. The fact that you could disguise yourself as a whaler and trick the enemy to approaching. And then, oh, just because you strike your colors and put up a different flag, you can suddenly start shooting. Then you're allowed to slaughter them. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was right. Nowadays, you're not allowed to do that. An American you know, frigate can't disguise itself as a super tank or get really close to a Soviet ship and then, you know, put up an American flag and just launch into the Russian ship anymore. But So you know, an action off of Formosa would look very different in terms of yeah. international law. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so that's a part of it. But I wanted to talk about the Matern thing just a second. The one thing in the movie, I think you don't see any sign of this, but it's in the books, is that in the books, Matern is a spy. Yes, yes, the yes. British. And right. in the, the intelligence in operations the, you don't get. Yeah, and I think in the movie, he's just made out to be this kind of doctor. And he's the ship's doctor, right? But he's not this, you know, clandestine, which is goes to your point about how he doesn't fit in anywhere, you know, because he's a Catalan right. Irish. And so he's used to sort of sneaking in and out of places, right? Because he's such a misfit. Right. This line got my attention because it takes place early in the movie. And I thought, oh, they'll come back to it and develop it. And then I thought, ah, this is one of those things that was in the movie because they had a sequel in mind as they were writing the original script. The Frenchman appears out of the mist and gets off two volleys at the surprise, the English ship. And before the English ship is able to disappear into the mist and protect itself, but it's, the ship has been badly mauled. And Captain Aubrey, Russell Crowe, says to Paul Bettany, Dr. Maturin, we've sailed to the other side of the world and they knew exactly where we were. And Dr. Maturin says, well, they have their agents as we have ours. So there's this mention of the intelligence war, but it doesn't get developed, never comes back. But I agree in the novels, it's, that's absolutely fascinating. Who's the, who's the character, Joseph Blaine? There's this kind of yeah, Q figure master. who lives in London, yeah. the spy master who lives in London, yes. Well, the other thing about Maturin, I thought that was, I think a bigger deal in the movie, that's less of a deal in the book is, they make him out to be kind of a proto Thomas Jefferson who, you know, can be a doctor and draw pictures of beetles and contribute to the Royal Society by, you know, reporting right. new things I've discovered. And that was, a, I thought, a wonderful part of the movie. That's not a big deal in the books. If I remember correctly, in the books, he's really into watches. Ah, see, Peter, another thing you have in common. He's into fine men's watches because back then that was like, part of being an, a learned person was, oh, look how we make all the right. dials and things work together. I don't remember him though, being like this kind of, you know, Jeffersonian scientist or Ben Franklin-like. That was a there, big part of the time that, in, you know, right in that time, yes, yes, was yes, this that, period, that, you were a naturalist and anyone through self-education and study could contribute to the growth of understanding yes. of nature. And you would find something like Audubon in America and then draw a picture, write it right. back, send it back to the right. Royal Academy or whoever right. back in London. That, that feeling, I agree with what you're saying, of course. The naturalist thing may be overdone or overweighted in the movie. What comes through in the books to me again and again is a feeling of newness. These ships are going places that people haven't mapped before. 
they're discovering species that no one has seen before. In the movie, it comes up where Captain Aubrey holds a ship's model of the enemy ship, and it's a new design. He's inventing tactics as he goes. You have the feeling that although to us that world seems very old, this is history, it was all settled and done and stayed. But Patrick O'Brien in these novels has this, you just get it again and again and again. It's the same sensation that I think we associate with space travel. Anything can happen, everything is new. Tactics are new, ship design is new. The things we'll see, the maps will, the charts, they're measuring, they're constantly measuring things and taking soundings and finding out whether the, the crude map they have can be refined. That's a fascinating bit of the book as well. The depth with which Patrick O'Brien understood the period. He didn't just get the facts right, he got the spirit right. It was a big deal for England to beat Napoleon and to emerge after that Cold War as the only superpower for a good long time. Mm -hmm. A hundred years. Yep. Yeah, in the novels especially, you get the sense that it's not really the Napoleonic Wars, it's the wars of the British Empire dominating the oceans and the seas around the world, ocean after ocean, sea after sea, they're expanding, and they're just getting better and better at being the naval world power. And I suppose, as you said, Peter, he started writing these, O'Brien did in the late 60s, they came out in Britain in the 70s, made a big deal in America only in the 90s, but Britain had lost everything. We could say that the yes. naval warfare is sort of like James Bond. These are fantasies yes. of empire once it's lost. And also a good recovery of what it meant, as you were saying. It's not just the Royal Navy, it's the Royal Society, right? It's the scientist, it's modernity. It's the first adventurous character of modernity where you are discovering and conquering and achieving all sorts of things that nobody had done before or nobody had done at that scale or with that precision. So you had this great combination of the jocks and the nerds, to speak uh, yes, of an American high school, right? And their friends. Which I'm sure, I, I know this is now. only occurring to me now, but I'm sure one of the reasons I loved it so much last night when I watched it again, not a touch of wokeness anywhere. <laughs> you get the feeling that this is what we've been talking about, that it's not a self-conscious, self-loathing empire yet. Everything is fresh. Everything is fresh. Morale is high. There's no self. Do you get maturing a little bit skeptical about this or that aspect of warfare? But he never doubts that Napoleon has to be defeated and it's the English who should do it. Total self-confidence. You get this moment of adolescent high spirits through the whole thing. That's why John loves it. So oh, much. of course. John, John being a permanent schoolboy. <laughs> now, this is, I'm a little reluctant to give it an ideological label, but it does seem a conservative movie in that respect, that it's a movie about nationalism. The great speech in the movie is right, uh, Aubrey saying, this is our little piece of England, you know, on the far yes. side of the world, right? This is a declaration of national interest. You know, we are here fighting because we love Great Britain. It's not because we are pledging our allegiance to the United Nations, <laughs> right? <laughs> or even the anti-Napoleon alliance, Right. You'd actually right. never hear about Prussia and Russia. <laughs> and, you know, this is our little piece of England. We're going to defend it like it's our home. Everyone on the ship is England. This is the kind of movie I think is the opposite of these movies are these kind of science fiction movies where all the nations of the world cooperate to get at the enemy alien and all the different languages and nationalities are represented, <laughs> you know, in these alliances. No, Those this horrible is the Star Wars scenes opposite. where you get these... You get these assemblies of legislators who all 
Some have three heads, some are pink. Yeah. So they all speak different language. It's the United Nations gone berserk in Star Wars. None of that in this, thank goodness. In fact, I don't know if this is opera because I'm also a big science fiction fan too, but you know, everyone hated the prequel movies, which are characterized by this galactic republic. And you know, the thing that everyone likes is this show called The Mandalorian, which yes. is this new show streaming on Disney, which is about you know the disorder at the edges. <laughs> right, the the Wild West. That's what Americans right. like. Right, the Clint Eastwood. That, that basically, it's Clint Eastwood in the Star Wars universe. You know, you're not relying on you know the intergalactic empire wow. for yourself. That you connection rely on yourself. Yeah, it is. The Mandalorian voice even sounds space, like right. Oh yeah, the Mandalorian is a great show because it is as if Clint Eastwood has been brought back and just given yeah. a blast. You know, a blaster and, and can, rather than. A can shock. you hear the man, the Mandalorian's voice? Is Clint Eastwood's voice? He's very soft spoken. Do you feel oh, lucky? Yeah. Well, do you? <laughs> it's, it's you're right. I hadn't thought of that, but it's Clint Eastwood. Oh yeah, oh yeah. In fact, I think if you watch The Mandalorian, they actually have Western movie sort of little tunes and echoes in the soundtracks. And you know, you walk into the bar and you start shooting. Right. It's very similar. Right. Sergio Leone should be making royalties off that show. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Good point. I hadn't spotted that. It's so embarrassing to see something. John, yeah, you're right. Something the, out. The annual seems obvious. musical cues too. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big cult. I, I out pop culture you any day, Peter. <laughs> yeah, you went to your fancy Ivy League schools out there, and <laughs> you're <laughs> going to start that the shock. The shock of it you know, on Peter's face. It's too bad this is an audio broadcast. Harvard and the Yale video. Is attacking <laughs> Dartmouth? Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Well, it's always the privilege announcing privilege, isn't it, Peter? <laughs> what did you I hope? <laughs> John goes to Harvard undergrad, Yale Law School, and then just because he likes Philly cheesesteak, he thinks he's a common man. Uh, Unbelievable. Oh, see, Peter, you didn't sit in on my... So Peter and I were together yesterday at the Hoover Institution because they run this boot camp for college students. So Peter, I saw him for lunch yesterday, but he didn't stick around for my class. Being from Philadelphia is the great equalizer that allows the elites and the common man to connect because if you're from Philadelphia, you have been beaten down and oppressed for so long that I can relate to anybody. What did you say I worked, to the kids? I worked cheesesteaks and the Eagles and the Phillies into my class. Everyone understood. See, when you're the fan of a team that I think didn't win a World Series for 100 years, everyone sympathizes with you. A century of rebuilding. <laughs> well, it was never built. <laughs> rebuilding <laughs> implies it was built in the first place. <laughs> Having established that we both love this movie, Having established that we both read all the books, what would you recommend for somebody as a kind of oh, follow you know on? Oh, what? I was going to say, we were actually, Titus and I were talking about this a little bit. Have you ever heard of the Sharp series by Richard, I think his name is Cromwell? or a British Empire and Sharp yeah. is the kind of zealot of the British Empire. No, no, not, same time. To be, no, no, go ahead. No, it's not. Oh, really? He's the oh, same okay. time period. It's almost as if someone took these books and put them on land. Bernard Cornwell, that's his name. And he, oh, he writes oh, about oh, a right. guy who was a private, starts out as a private under Wellington in India. So this, the other interesting thing is you learn all about India and Lord Wellington before he was Lord Wellington and before the Napoleonic Wars. He starts out as a private and he makes it all the way up to, I think, 
Now, this guy is still around. He's, he just paused writing these books. I think he becomes an officer, which was not allowed back then. You're, you had to be an aristocrat to become an officer, but he was such a good fighter and takes you all through the various Napoleonic campaigns, the Peninsula campaign. But unlike this one, this is interesting, Peter, they did make this into a show. And so there is a BBC or ITV series about these sharp books. And it's the show that made this guy, Sean Bean, the actor Sean Bean, a figure. So Sean Bean, like since you like um, Lord of the Rings, Sean Bean is the uh, guy in the first of the Lord of the Rings movie, who is the son of the regent of Gondor. Yeah, he plays Borwan. But he's been in lots of great, he's a great actor. Yeah, he's a guy who dies at the end of the first movie. Yeah, Sean Bean's a great actor. He's often- Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. I just looked him up. He's often the bad guy in lots of movies too, but he's sharp. And he's very much like Aubrey, you know, reckless, daring. And I think, tell tell me wrong, I think both of these series- so a lot of people, I think, accused O'Brien not of plagiarism, but he would go to the Royal Navy archives and pull the reports of actual engagements. And that became where he got a lot of his ideas from. So a lot of these are actual sort of fictionalized real events. I think the same is true of Sharp. That yeah, if that's exactly back right. Sharp, a lot of battles. They're real battles. Yeah. And he explains a lot about what it was like to fight back then. And he describes sieges and what would happen, sacking of cities and things that you know we don't know about anymore. But I think he took a lot of it from history. Also, I would say if you like this series, I think the Sharp series is the next natural thing to read. I will look at that. On London Calling, another Ricochet podcast, James Dellingpole and Toby Young have been commenting on Cornwall has another series of books. Oh yeah, it's like a mythic, uh, medieval mythic Arthurian. He has two. Stuff. He said yeah. there's an Arthurian series, I think, a trilogy. Yeah. The guy writes like a maniac. He, I mean, he's so productive. And then also he's done books on Crazy and apparently the sort of early Renaissance of uh, Years War. Really? Wow. Am I right? I think am so. I, he stopped writing the Sharp series to turn to these other books because I think these other books were much more successful. Oh, really? Yeah, people like fantasy a lot more than reality. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It has magic in it and stuff. <laughs> but uh, Cornwall and O'Brien figured out this great way to bring sort of dad and son interests together. All the war, like interests and love and all the stuff that you love as a teenager, but also all the great technical stuff and the history that an American man starts to fall in love with in his 30s or 40s. It's a brilliant combination, and I think it's one of the reasons it has this generational pool. They haven't gone away. So Peter knows this about me. I'm going to argue against my prejudices, because Peter knows I'm prejudiced against aristocracy and monarchy. I can't stand that about Great Britain. Their slavish reverence for the royal family and their whole this whole architecture of aristocracy. That's why we all came to America, was to get away from these kind of societies. But here's what I'm going to argue against my prejudice is we don't have American equivalents to these. We have like Bosch. We have, who's his name? The author who, in fact, the Library of America just issued his books. He wrote the books that became like the movie Out of Sight. And Elmore um, Leonard, you're right. Yeah, Elmore Leonard. Exactly. Oh, Elmore Leonard. Yeah. That's so we have, you know, yes, you get yeah, short so of Elmore Leonard. Yeah, get it? short. So yes, we have these yes, like. Yes. Our series are kind of detective novels and police novels. It's the hard-boiled guy on the street. We don't have the aristocrat. Yeah. But no, but it's not even aristocrat. I was just wondering whether this aristocratic culture or monarchical culture 
supports this interest in military series, historical novels, which put the officer corps as the hero. I can't think of any American series that's kind of like that. TVs or right, like the American movies are like the one I was thinking of that's kind of like this, which also has Clint Eastwood is something like Kelly's Heroes, where the officers are idiots and it's the smart enlisted men yes. or Band of Brothers, where it's the enlisted men and maybe the lieutenant who's the hero. But, you know, the higher up commanders are usually seen as buffoons and out of touch, right. except maybe Patton was a counterexample. But most of the other movies don't seem to glorify the office corps. You don't have these kind of long. I just, I don't know why. I just, just thinking while we've been talking, well, I was saying, man, uh, you said, what would you read next? I wanted to recommend an American book. I want to throw off the shackles of English thinking, but I can't think of one. This is related to your comment. It's not the same point, but it's related to your comment. I happen to have a friend. I probably shouldn't name him because what did he ever do to get dragged into a conversation about the English aristocracy? But I happen to have it's a either, friend who's- It's either a, Rob Long or James Lyglitz. You can- No, no, no. This, I happen to have a friend who is an earl. He sits in the House <laughs> of Lords. He's, an, he's a hereditary peer. And one of the big changes he tells me in the House of Lords, you recall that Tony Blair reformed the House of Lords, reducing to a small number the hereditary peers who sit there and increasing enormously the life peers. That is to say the people who only get a title for their own lifetime and it does not pass down in their family. In his father's time, this is an old title. My friend is the more than one dozenth holder of this title. So it goes back more than three centuries. Does he have a gigantic jaw and a lisp? No, actually he's, <laughs> you, you, he's, uh, he's highly intelligent, very successful, and he's a remarkable guy. But here's the point right through until the reform by Tony Blair in 1990-something or other, the House of Lords had a particular feel for and paid particular attention to the British armed forces because of the aristocratic tradition of serving in the armed forces. If you were a hereditary peer, the expectation was still very strong that when you were young, you would serve in the Navy or the Army. And the reform of Lords in 19 changed all of that. These people who come in with life peerages have spent their entire lives striving within one narrow profession. So you'll have a life peer who knows everything there is to know about some narrow field in finance, but nothing at all about the British military. So there was some kind of tradition. You're talking about the literary aspect, but it had a place in British public life as well. In Parliament itself, a kind of formal standing, the attention to the officer corps, of the British military, which is now gone. So you can rejoice about that, John. <laughs> that whack that Tony Blair took at the aristocratic system. That's but it so didn't exist. But they, point. they still have a monarchy. Oh, John. Well, a hereditary John, John monarchy. Is... How can people in this day and age subject themselves to the idea that they are to be ruled by a hereditary monarchy? She doesn't rule anything. She it's, does. It's the lottery of birth. They say, well, this is too dangerous to have people represent the nation, you'll end up with some lunatic dictator. So you just take it and say, well, let's make it a lottery. Whoever gets born into this job gets the job. And we'll all pretend as though they're See, we'll all yeah, Peter, to that person. Unlike Alexander Hamilton, Peter really is a crypto monarchist. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Alexander Hamilton accused his whole life of being a monarch, crypto monarch but he wasn't. Peter Robinson, crypto monarchist. Oh, so the next book we're going to have to read <laughs> Our friend and Hoover colleague, Andrew Roberts, has a new book out on George III. Oh, really? Oh. Although Andrew, like, Andrew's no, a little suspect. Yeah, it will be interesting, won't it? We'll have yeah. to. 
he's a fan of George the Third. Oh yes, he is. Is also really? a fan of Napoleon, which makes his book on Napoleon was overwhelmingly pro Napoleon, which gives me a little bit of a. I, uh, I'm not telling you. He wasn't all bad. He wasn't all bad. In Europe, Napoleon. Napoleon was the greatest figure of the entire 19th century, and by default, there yeah. were also the 20th century. Just he was just an early version of the European Union, Peter. <laughs> but I rest was a my case. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> As early as Stendhal, right, in the Rouge Le Noir, Julien Sorel just wants to be Napoleon. That's his only ideal. What can a Frenchman aspire to if you're yeah. a man of talent or you think you have an ambition? What could you really be? It's the only thing worth being. And it was that way for the rest of the century. And uh, books about Napoleon accordingly still sell some kind of resurgence of aristocracy and revolutionary Europe. And unlike the aristocrats, he wasn't old and stodgy. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, that the Swedish royal house still bears the last name Bernadotte. Ooh, Titus and I may have John on this one. Yeah. You know the, what we're talking He's about. He's the John. only one of the kingdoms of Bonaparte that, uh, you know, hung, hung on. Oh, that's that. left. Right. Strangely he was enough. one of Napoleon's field marshals yep. who actually had a falling out with Napoleon. Napoleon exactly. didn't install him. The Swedes invited him to come be king. Is the Dutch royal family... Still not the House of Orange? Did it not make it all the way? They're still the House of Orange, but they weren't installed by Napoleon. Oh, no, they're... No, no, no I'm not talking about Napoleon. I'm just thinking of royal families. Oh, no. The, back to that time. The oldest continuous family line is the Danish monarchy, which goes back to somebody called something like Hagar Bluetooth or some... I mean, it goes... They, they <laughs> oh, can yeah, trace Bluetooth, the thing all that's the way right. Back. They can that's trace the thing all the way Bluetooth, back to some right. Viking... That's why they need Bluetooth, Bluetooth, the technology. Yes, 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 that's right. You're, I remember reading that. That's right. One uh, tangent after another, but as long yeah, as we're talking about the Danish, I, I learned in Copenhagen. how this stuff still has a power to fascinate people. It does. Who knows why? John will tell us why. I learned when I was in Copenhagen, maybe this is a monarchy more to your liking, John, that no. the queen, <laughs> Queen Marguerite, most Mondays of each month has office hours. Anyone who wants to turn up can show up and go say hello to the queen or bring a complaint to her. Isn't that remarkable? That apparently works. She shows up, there's an office, and people get in line and go in and have a word with her. American presidents did that 200 years ago. Yes, just yes, show yeah, yeah. up and bother Jefferson or you know Lincoln for that matter. Well, that's how I feel like when students come to my office hours. I feel like a monarch saying, what the hell are you doing here? I've got to go polish the silver. Do you actually keep office hours, John? Oh, you have to. Yeah, but you do. It's required. And do, this, and do students actually use them? Do students turn up? Yeah. Yeah. Not every time, but sometimes. Yeah. They have interesting and, things to say. Yeah, they do have interesting things to say. Although, always, you know, this is interesting. This is a change of technology is they used to come a lot more before email became so prevalent. So now a lot of them will just email, you know, they don't understand something from class. They'll just email you a question. But, you know, in the old days, you would go to, if you didn't understand something, you would go to the professor in office hours and ask them. So that's changed. So you get less of that. But as yet, there's no revolution against the aristocracy of tenure. The only American of aristocracy. Of course not. No, no, there's still some. Yes, yes, there's yes. still some bisphorics and other sinecures yes, that must be preserved. Yes, yes. Thank you, Titus. <laughs> that's very, thank you. The next time John attacks the aristocracy, I will say, ah, yes, yes. A tenured professor attacking <laughs> members of the House of Lords. Ha! 
Well, I just want everyone to make sure they know who's actually superior. <laughs> John's in favor of meritocracy because he's pretty sure he'll yes. always come out on top. <laughs> I have my doubts. Those of us who have less talent have their doubts about that sort of thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm totally on Jefferson's side on the aristocracy of talent. Yeah. How could you be for anything else? What is the justification for a hereditary lineage being representative of any kind of quality or ability or yeah, but that's society the point. in the right way? That's the point. It's a pure lottery. It's the pure accident of birth. And if you look at the way members of Congress and members of the Senate in this country conduct themselves, you couldn't do any worse than filling one chamber on a lottery. It's the same impulse as Bill Buckley, I'd rather be ruled yes. by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone Book than by the faculty of Harvard University. That's roughly what it means to be ruled by an aristocracy. So sort of. I think that's a very sort democratic of. argument for aristocracy, right? Yes, exactly. Taking birth with luck is a very democratic well, idea. Well, you know, we right. Birth will, means so something you were saying to people who have a family name to inherit, and to everybody who is connected to them. You see that before modernity, people cared more about longevity. A regime is a good regime if it lasts a long time, and so all things, all of them, have a privilege because they have worked for a long time. That's what we used to mm. call conservatism, after all. Yes, yes, yes. That's the argument yes. for well, I, I will, uh, aristocracy, I would politely submit as a friendly stranger. No American should be making arguments for any kind of aristocracy, of course. I'm with John on this one, but as a friendly stranger, I will argue in favor of the old British regime, which is, you know, gone. It's gone, so we can argue um, in favor of it, I would yes, say, without exactly. any disloyalty. That's, that's true, that's true. That's true. But, I, will, uh, I will make the point that in America, Peter's prejudices in favor of the common man is actually very much a part of our self-governance. You know, the power of life and death is held by the jury in our system. And that is right. A lottery of 12 people yes, it is. to represent the average of the community who get to hear complicated evidence and decide whether OJ Simpson really did it or not. You know, John, have you ever been involved in jury Cosby. selection? Oh, I always get knocked out. You know, <laughs> the first thing they ask you is, do you know anybody in law enforcement? Do you know any judges? You know, I'm like, oh, judges, well, which courts? <laughs> so they're like, get out of here. Get, just get the hell out of here. You know, I sat in on a uh, voir dire, where, which is often not shown in movies because it's uninteresting. But usually when you have a criminal trial, you call 100 people to potentially serve on the jury. And then both sides, the prosecution defense, then ask them all questions to reduce it down to 12 people. So that's called voir dire. You're trying to detect bias. So you're trying to detect someone biased for law enforcement. And so I actually made it to the 14th, like I was in a group of 14, because this particular judge didn't ask about anyone's backgrounds first. Usually he filled out a questionnaire and then they knocked me out right away when they find out I'm a law professor and who I know. This time the judge just went right to ask the lawyers, ask them questions about their. And you'll hear the funniest things like, I mean, not funny. I mean, they're amazing. Like a lawyer will say, have you ever had interactions with the police? And so this person say, Yes, I have. What do you think about the police? And this person will say, I think they are always lying. <laughs> right? So they're like, okay, you can leave now. Like things like that. I mean, people are <laughs> right. so upfront with their prejudices in this. Oh, they are. Uh, oh yeah. Like they don't, yeah, they just. They, like, because they're, they're honest, they're, they're answering honestly about the way they think or because they're shrewd enough to give answers that'll get them kicked out. Who wants to serve I, on a jury after you all? Can, that's interesting. Then this is part of the theatrics of the trial that is like right. why it's such a good material for movies and TV is people, when they're sitting in the little jury box or up on the witness stand and the judge is talking at them. And I think you can tell pretty well when someone's lying or not. Oh, you can. 
people get very nervous, even though there's nothing at stake. You know, even if it's just you, whether you serve on a jury or not, which is not the biggest stakes in the world, you can tell when people lie, I think, to get out of jury service. And the judges who've seen thousands of these people, they start asking them more questions. The judge sometimes will jump in and say, oh, you really think all the police are always lying? And they'll say, well, give me an example. And then he'll say, really? So if you had an altercation and someone tried to attack you, you call the police, you don't trust the police to be there. And they'll go on and on to make sure no one gets away with that. Because the judge is the one who's supposed to make sure they go ahead and assemble a jury. His interest is in keeping the trial efficient, for want of a better word, for bringing yeah, it in on, on time it, and on yeah. budget, so to speak. Is that right? Yeah. If you think about it, if it's easy to get out of jury service just by saying, oh, I think all the police are liars, soon you won't have anyone to serve on the jury because everyone right. will say it. So the judges right. have an interest in making sure people are only dismissed from a jury for the right reasons and not just because they don't want to miss a few days off from work. Right. And so I've always you... wanted to be on a jury because I wanted to see, right? So the, here's another great example, right? How do we think jury deliberations in the closed room are like? We probably think it's like 12 Angry 12 Men. 12 Angry Men. Right? The right. greatest movie right. ever made. By... In fact, we show that to students in, these sh- in this course on cinema and the law. I've always wanted to actually see what it's like because I don't think it's like that at all. <laughs> I'm very curious to see what, but I've never been able to get in. See, Peter, you can because your ignorance of the law is a sure ticket for you to get into a jury. <laughs> so, John, you can be an American yeah. meritocrat, but not one of 12 men good and true. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually not sure I trust juries anymore. I know how to get myself out of jury selection instantly. I'll tell them I know you, John. Ah, that's true. You get that out of here. Ticket out of the jury every time. <laughs> or Rob Long. Or Rob Long. <laughs> it's a very interesting observation that there's some kind of call fight between the comfortable desire to get out of the duty and on the other hand the solemnity of the moment that makes you fidgety about lying or in some sense breaking your word even if the stakes are very low for jury selection and it is true that people still select juries americans still do jury duty so the I, part of citizenship that many, goes against every it's the closest many americans will get to participation in self-government you're basically for that time period you're an official of the government in a way you mm. are wielding the power of the state. Most people never do that again or never have to do it. They should welcome it. Most people don't want to serve on juries because it takes time. You miss out on jury, you miss out your day, days from work. Although maybe during the COVID lockdown, since the federal government's paying people not to work, maybe all those people should be required to do jury service for everyone else for the next 10 years. That's a good idea. You see the democratic impulse, John, one thing after <laughs> another, John says, would, he could run for, he could get elected to anything the way he talks. <laughs> But he chose the law. And the very is safe. Who, and this is, this will stick the knife in me, Peter. I'm surprised I'm you didn't do this. Who did Alexis de Tocqueville say were America's natural class of aristocracy? Please don't tell me the lawyers. Yes, the lawyers. He said, because there's no nobility in America, that function of an inherited aristocracy in society is played by lawyers and judges. Even in a democracy, you have to select people who are clever about speaking, especially which is the power of the law behind it. So well, the worst thing about the Master and Commander movie, there was no jag on the boat. A notable absence of courts martial and whatnot. Although in the first yeah, novel, no there is one. So yeah, that's I just lo- loathe as I loathe as I am to give John the last word. I alas have to return to the labors of the day here in Palo Alto, California. If you'll forgive me. What time is it? It's evening. Peter's Google, working, you- you're working on your book, right? 
tell everybody about your book. No, no, no. I'll work on the no. book when I finally got the book. What book? No. Just say uh, no, you're I'm working on a great book. Yes. Thank you. It's going to be a great book. It's going to be I a great so. book. We'll but he doesn't want anyone to steal the idea that. for it yet, so he's but not going to no, tell my, us yeah, what it's a it secret. Is. My theory <laughs> is that God gives you a choice each day. You can either talk about a book or you can write it. And if I talk about it, I talk about it plenty. All right, enough of that. Well said. All right, gentlemen, then I believe it's about time we should wrap up. This has been a vastly wide-ranging discussion from the Lincoln lawyer to the Napoleonic War. Thank you very much for joining me. This was great fun. I was glad to just have the opportunity to read and to watch the movie again. These are indeed things we can recommend to everybody. The Patrick O'Brien, Aubrey Maturin series, Cornwell series about the shark novels, and of course the Hornblower series from three generations back, or four now, I guess. These are excellent for young men. I have recommended them to many young men of my acquaintance, and it's always been quite a success. So I think it's a tradition worth passing on, and perhaps 20th century will make new Aubrey Maturin movies. They're saying, but we'll see whether it actually gets done. Cross our fingers, I guess. John, Peter, thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks for your time and for entertaining me at such great length. All the a best. pleasure, Titus. John, I'll see you soon. A lot of uh, fun. Get back to the crafts tables right now. <laughs> oh, I've, I've stopped. I'm about even, so I don't want to. Oh, get you're about even. Here. Stop there. <laughs> There's something in there. A lawyer who likes the unjust games of gambling. There's something in they're there. They're not unjust. What do you mean they're unjust? They're for not a few earned. dollars, I get to sit for hours and be entertained. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right, boys. Tight. It's a pleasure. All the best. Bye. Bye. Bye.